This, this is the Pat O'Keefe Show. An afternoon game in the Bronx. You heard the update at the top of the hour. The Yankees leading the Kansas City Royals 4 to nothing in the top of the third inning. Another home run for Aaron Judge. This was what they call a Yankee Stadium home run. Landed in the first row in right field, right center field, but more towards right field. Probably one of those, according to StatCast, I'd have to look it up, that wouldn't be a home run in most ballparks. But guess what? First of all, most of Aaron Judge's home runs are no doubters, and then some. Secondly, this is the ballpark he plays in, and this is the ballpark he's playing in today, Yankee Stadium. It is really unbelievable the streak that he is on right now. Nine home runs since the All-Star break. The All-Star break ended a little more than a week ago. And he's got nine home runs in a little more than a week. So the Yankees lead the Royals 4 to nothing in the top of the third inning. The Royals have something brewing, however, as they have runners on second and third and nobody out in the top of the third. Great to be with you. We've got a busy show today. We're going to follow along the Yanks and the Royals, get you set for the Mets and the Marlins tonight. Carlos Carrasco on the mound for the Mets. Try to get things straightened out. Record is excellent, 10-4. and four. ERA is okay, 4.07. Big win for the Mets last night. Big win for the Yankees last night, both in come-from-behind fashion. We've got Jacob Perry producing this afternoon. We're going to talk a lot of football. Jordan Renan of ESPN will join me at the bottom of this hour from Giants training camp. A little bit of a scuffle at Giants training camp earlier today. Day four of the entire team being in camp and on the field together. This happens, it seems like it happens every year. It seems like it happens with every team almost every year. Weather is hot. uh, Helmets are on. Tempers are a little heated. And that seems to be what happened in East Rutherford earlier today. Uh, Dexter Lawrence, defensive lineman for the Giants. Shane Lemieux, offensive lineman, got after each other. It seemed like, according to what I'm reading, and we'll get Jordan's take on this when he joins us at 3.30, uh, it seems like after a play was over, Lemieux went after Lawrence and tackled him to the ground, and you know all hell broke loose for a couple of minutes until uh, cooler heads prevailed. Uh, it, that indicates to me that Lemieux wasn't happy with something that Lawrence had done earlier either that or he just tackled his teammate out of thin air again who knows uh it's very hot out there this happens it's 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 pretty common uh in training camps I was just trying to think if there are any like prime examples where one of these types of altercations during training camp has ever had a lasting effect and I honestly can't think of that ever being the case I think it's as commonplace especially in a sport like football where you and your teammates are literally running into each other in hot temperatures for two hours a day. Uh, so we'll have Jordan on bottom of the hour. We'll talk about the Jets. Plenty of basketball to talk about as well. This James Harden, Philadelphia 76ers tampering story is interesting. Uh not great news for Knicks fans who are hoping that their team can land Donovan Mitchell as it appears that the Knicks and Jazz trade talks have stalled, at least momentarily, in the Knicks' quest to acquire the all-star guard. Um, and then there's this news that's really starting to to heat up, this rumored trade of Kevin Durant to the Boston Celtics, uh, of which I have many thoughts. But, but first and foremost is this, and I'll get more into this as the show continues. But if after all of this, Kyrie Irving, even before that, James Harden, now Kevin Durant's trade demand – if Brooklyn can come out of this with Jalen Brown and pieces, but if Jalen Brown with Jalen Brown as a centerpiece, that would 
be better than anything I, I would have thought they could have accomplished. So we'll see if that actually ends up being the case. I do have some thoughts on that uh, that we'll get into. Uh, again, Yanks and <clears throat> Royals right now, top of the third inning, 4 nothing Yankees. Runners on second and third now, one out. Nestor Cortez, who pitched six shutout innings in his last outing on Sunday in Baltimore on the mound for the Yanks. Last night, baseball-wise, in what has been, you can't really argue or nitpick anything if you're a baseball fan in New York. You can't nitpick anything as far as how the season has gone so far. I mean, it's just been one pleasurable experience after another no matter which team you root for. Frustrating moments, frustrating games, frustrating innings, for sure. I mean, it's a 162-game schedule. We've got two teams in this town to follow. That is absolutely going to happen. But right now, what you're experiencing right now is, is the best-case scenario of baseball in New York with both the Yankees and the Mets in first place playing extremely well. And I was on this show last night, or on the air last night, 7 to 10, uh, as we followed along both games. Both teams having to come from behind to win. And on Monday, the calendar will turn to August, which means essentially we have two full months remaining of the regular season. Both the Yankees and the Mets will be in the playoffs. Most likely, well, in the Yankees' case, definitely as the division winner in the American League East. For the Mets, it's not a sure thing. They have a three-game lead over Atlanta for first place, whether it is as the division winner whether it is as whether it is as the wild card in the National League, the Mets will be there as well. So yeah, you have to start kind of looking at these two teams through a different lens, and that lens is how do they stack up for the playoffs? Well, from the Mets' perspective, a couple of things. Number one, what we saw from Max Scherzer on Wednesday night, what we've seen from Max Scherzer since he came back from the injured list, both in his performance on the mound, his leadership in the dugout, his leadership in the clubhouse, it's been everything you could have wanted uh, is you, if you're a Mets fan, as Kansas City hits a ball all the way to the fence in center field that Aaron Hicks runs down for out number two. I think that was Salvador Perez. And the run does score on the sack fly, so it's four to one. But Scherzer showed you on Wednesday night everything that you want in an ace on your team. It was a high-stakes game. It was an electrically charged atmosphere, the Yankees and the Mets. Look, this was the most anticipated Subway Series since Roger Clemens and the Yankees went into Shea Stadium for the first time after Clemens had thrown the bat at Piazza. I think that was 2002. He obviously threw the bat at Piazza in 2000. If memory serves, the Mets had to wait to see Clemens at Shea until 2002. And back then that was a big deal because we had the designated hitter, or we didn't have the designated hitter in the National League. So Clemens was going to have to step into the batter's box against the Mets. So that since that, though, this has been the most highly anticipated Subway Series we've seen. Mets win a really impressive game on Tuesday in Game 1, and now they have a chance to go for the sweep. And what did Scherzer do? He went out and he shut the Yankees out for seven innings, and he made the best player in baseball, at least for one night anyway, look kind of foolish, striking out Aaron Judge all three times that he faced them. So that's number one for the Mets as far as what are they going to look like in the postseason. Well, pretty good with that guy on top of your rotation. And now the news coming out today, we speculated last night that we could see Jacob deGrom on Tuesday in Washington. And now we will indeed see Jacob deGrom on Tuesday night in Washington. So right off the bat, we're going to see what that looks like 
one-two combo leading off a series. Not a postseason series, just a three-game series in early August in Washington against the last-place team. But you're going to get Max Scherzer on Monday night. You're going to get Jacob DeGrom on Tuesday night on the mound in Washington. And, look, these next two months for DeGrom are all about building up and getting ready for the postseason. Now, all of his injury problems in recent years and all of the issues that he has faced, do some of them stem from the fact that he consistently throws the ball 100, 101 miles per hour? Maybe. I don't know. Is something he's been working on, readjusting the way he pitches, maybe easing off the gas even by 5% to preserve his arm? I don't know. It's going to be interesting to watch how he reintegrates himself into this Mets rotation. But he's back on Tuesday. So now you do have as good a one-two combo atop your rotation that I can remember since, what, Randy Johnson and Curt Schilling in 2001? And that was a championship team. That was a World Series championship team. And then number three, just the continued toughness of this Mets lineup. And both teams showed this last night. But this Mets lineup just feels differently. And I think a big reason for that is the manager. You know, Buck Showalter, from the beginning of this season, changed the culture. He did not once allow Jacob DeGrom's absence to become an excuse. And then Max Scherzer went down for about a month. And Showalter wouldn't allow that to be an excuse either. Mets got off to a very good start. You could sense immediately that something was different about this team. They had a different level of confidence. They also, the way they played the game, had a different level of competence. And that, in my mind, comes directly from the manager. That's why they brought Buck Showalter in. And now you're starting to see guys that we're still getting to know in this town. Starling Marte, his first season here. Eduardo Escobar, his first season here. Francisco Lindor, it's his second season here. These are the names that, if this is going to end up being a special season, are going to be the names that you remember 5, 10, 15 years ago from now. And, and it's interesting that we're having this conversation today because today happens to be old-timers day at Yankee Stadium. And when you look at, and when I was growing up, I would go to a couple of old-timers days at Yankee Stadium. And at that time, this is the late 80s, the early 90s. You know, at that time, the, the centerpiece for all of the fans who were buying the tickets and sitting in the seats and taking their sons to the game, like my father was doing for me, those fans were fans of the 76, 77, 78 Yankees. That Yankees team that went to three straight World Series, also went to the World Series in 1981, won the World Series back-to-back years in 1977-78. You know, time marches on, and now most of the fans occupying these seats and taking their kids to the games were fans of the 96 through 2001 era Yankees. So, you know, when I was growing up, the guys that got the loudest ovations were Bucky Dent, and he's still coming and Mickey Rivers, Chris Chambliss, Greg Nettles, obviously Reggie Jackson. And now it's Tino Martinez, it's David Cohn, it's Bernie Williams. Um, you know, Mariano Rivera wasn't there today. But when you look back on the careers of these guys, the one thing you notice, and the MCs, as always, for Yankees Old Timers Day, John Sterling and Michael Kay, and they as they announce and introduce every old-timer to come out, there's a couple of sentences that they 
mention about that player's career. And in almost every single case, what they are talking about is what the player did in postseason. It's not he did this in the regular season or, you know, he did this over the course of five regular seasons. You know, Chris Chambliss, as an example, hit one of the biggest home runs in Yankees history. Game uh, or 1976 ALCS game tied walk off home run sends the Yankees into the World Series. Bucky Dent, obviously, 1978 over the green monster, puts the Yankees into the playoffs, then goes on to win World Series MVP. Even a guy like Brian Doyle, who was also on that 1978 team. What do you mention about Brian Doyle's career? Well, if you even know who Brian Doyle is, and he was a reserve second baseman on the 78 Yankees, the only thing you know about Brian Doyle's career is that he caught fire in the 1978 World Series. So that's what makes you special to fans. Bernie Williams, two walk-off home runs in postseason games. Tino Martinez, the huge home run in the 98 World Series against the Padres, and, of course, the two-down, two-out, two-run home run in the bottom of the ninth inning in Game 4 of the 2001 World Series off of Byung Young Kim. Almost every single guy who was introduced, what was said about them was what they did in the postseason. And both of these teams in New York this year, the Yankees and the Mets, are full of players who over the next three months are going to get the chance to really write their legacies. You know, Aaron Judge is having as good a season as I can remember. The only thing for me that stacks up to the season that Aaron Judge is having is what Alex Rodriguez did in 2007 when he hit 57 home runs and had a million RBIs that year. This is better. Aaron Judge right now, he has 42 home runs after his two-run home run today. He is on pace to hit 67 home runs. He is pretty well ahead of the pace of Roger Maris, which is the Yankees record and the American League record. But Aaron Judge's legacy as a Yankee, and this gets even more tricky when you consider that he is not guaranteed to be a Yankee beyond this season, but his legacy as a Yankee isn't written. You know, what's Aaron Judge's postseason moment? Let's just, let's say the Yankees don't win this year and then Aaron Judge leaves as a free agent. I think both of those things can happen. So in 20 years, Aaron Judge comes back to an old-timers day. What are they going to say about him? They're probably going to talk about this regular season. They'll talk about the 52 home runs that he hit as a rookie in 2017. But that's regular season accomplishments. In really any city, but we're talking specifically about New York because that's where we are. But in this town, what separates you, what makes your image last is what you did in the postseason. There are exceptions to that rule. Don Mattingly certainly comes to mind, a notable exception. And even Don Mattingly performed great in his one opportunity to play in the postseason. But it's what have you done or what will you do in October that really cements your legacy? So it's going to be fun to watch both teams, the Yankees and the Mets and the players on those rosters try to write their legacies over the next three months. Again, some football talk coming up. Uh, Yankees and Royals uh, going to the fourth inning and the Yankees leading 4-1. to Mets-Marlins coming up later tonight, a 6-10 start. 
Carlos Carrasco on the mound. And your calls, 1-800-919-3776 on this Saturday afternoon. It's Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN New York. DJ LeMay, who hit a leadoff home run. Glaber Torres added an RBI double in the first inning. And in the third, Aaron Judge, a two-run home run, his 42nd of the season. For Judge, it was also his 200th career home run. And according to the Yes broadcast, that is the second fewest games in Major League Baseball history to reach 200 career home runs. He has played in 671 games. The only player who needed fewer games to reach 200 home runs was Ryan Howard of the Phillies, who got off to that great start in his career before injuries derailed it towards the end. And all season long, you can listen to 98.7 ESPN for ESPN Sunday Night Baseball, brought to you by Nissan. You deserve a car that thrills you, and Nissan's got an exciting full line That'll put goosebumps on your goosebumps. Experience the thrill for yourself. Shop your local Nissan store and NissanUSA.com today. So the Yanks leading KC 4-1. to They won the first two games of this series. Both teams last night, like I said, it was indicative of who these teams have become. The Mets trailed 3-0 to the best pitcher in baseball this year in Miami, Sandy Alcantara, and his 1.81 ERA. Mets trailed 3-0, battled right back to tie it at 3. Fell behind 4-3, and then they tied the game on a Starling Marte home run, and then on a two-run home run by Brandon Nimmo in the 8th, they go on to win 6-4. Another sterling closeout effort for Edwin Diaz, who right now is the best closer in baseball. And the Yankees, for the second time out of the All-Star break last night, get a subpar performance from Garrett Cole. Their ace just has not gotten it done in recent weeks. Yanks handed him a 3-0 lead. He promptly gave up five runs in the fifth inning. The Yankees looked like they were on their way to a frustrating loss when the rains came in the eighth, down 5-3. There was about a 20 or 30 minute rain delay. Play resumed and it looks like Kansas City forgot to come back out on the field because the Yankees scored eight runs in the bottom of the eighth inning, capped off by a grand slam off the bat of Aaron Judge to win the game 11-5. So Judge uh, had the two home runs last night, and he has won already over the fence today for number 42. Going to talk some football in a few minutes. You know, I, I pointed this out last week when I was on one of these shows, and ESPN.com uh, in preparation for the upcoming football season has done a great job. They just come out with these lists and there's with all of the stats and all of the positions, quarterback, coach, running back, defenses, there's just so many things that you can rank in the NFL. And when the NFL is gone for several months, as it has been, and, and now it is back in training camps, uh, people are excited to consume NFL content. One of the lists that I found interesting they did the power rankings of the 32 NFL teams, but they ranked them based on how they're going to be for the next three years. Not right now, not this year, but how will they be over the next three years? Because I think we're all in agreement that the Giants and the Jets this year are not going to be in the top half of the NFL. What you want to see from both local teams is progress. I think the Jets are definitely in position to be better. I'm not as confident that the Giants are, but I will say that they're going to be better only because they were so awful last year that, frankly, it'll be a little bit difficult to not be better than they were last year. But when I looked at these rankings for teams and how they will be over the next three years, 
the Jets were 21st on the list, which I think says a lot about the job that Joe Douglas is doing right now. Uh, that means that those who are observing this over a long term, uh, through a long term lens, think that because right now you would figure the Jets as currently constructed are what, 27th, 28th for this year's team in a power rankings poll. But when you see them jump up to number 21 for over the next three years, that means they're on the right track. The Giants, on the other hand, I would imagine that for a power rankings poll of this year and this year alone, they would be right near the bottom of the NFL. But how about over the next three years? What kind of groundwork has been laid? What kind of building blocks are in place for the next three years? Well, according to the ESPN.com rankings of how teams will be over the next three years, the Giants came in at 29th. So that means, according to these experts who put this together, the Giants are bad now, and we know that, and we can accept that, okay? You just hope for some sort of progress this year. But they're not only bad now, but according to this, you should expect them to be bad next year and the year after that as well. So three years from now, according to this, they will still be the 29th best team in the NFL, which means there will only be three teams worse than the Giants for the next three years. And that's really the frustrating part. If your team goes through a period in which the Giants have gone through and the Jets' period of futility has been longer, they haven't been to the playoffs since 2010, but if you go through that, the one thing you can hope for is light at the end of the tunnel. This implies that there's starting to be some light at the end of the tunnel for the Jets. For the Giants, and I know Joe Shane just got here, and I know Brian Dayball just got here, but as we all figured... They do have their work cut out for them because, according to this anyway, you can't yet see the light at the end of the tunnel. All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll uh, catch up with a guy who's been out of Giants training camp and get his thoughts, Jordan Renan, uh, Giants beat reporter for ESPN. It's Pat O'Keefe with you this afternoon on 98.7 ESPN New York. First off, uh, fr from your perspective, um, how has training camp gone at large so far from what you've seen? I mean, it's a, it's a new regime. And I said this before, and I, I, you know, they asked me to make a bold prediction for the summer. And uh, so my bold prediction was the Giants' defense was going to dominate the summer. And it's not that the Giants' defense is this great, you know, 86 defense or, you know, even, uh, you know, the 2000 seven or 11 defense to be honest with you. But when you install a new offense, there are growing pains. Granted, they're installing a new defense, but it, offense is the one that always takes longer. I remember in 2014, Ben McAdoo arrives and he changes Eli Manning's footwork and it's a new system for Eli. And it's a two-time Super Bowl winner in Eli Manning. And that summer, the Giants offense was a mess. Like they were throwing interceptions left and right. So it's going to take time, but you know, you see the fact that they have their playmakers and a lot of their guys on the field, to me, that's the biggest bonus, whether they can, you know, iron out the kinks. like that. They have time for that. So keep these guys healthy because they're not a very deep team. You know, Kadarius Tony, keep him healthy. Kenny Galladay, keep him healthy. Daniel Jones, Saquon Barkley, keep these guys healthy. Kayvon Thibodeau, you know, then this team has a chance to be competitive. If they're without those guys, if they're playing like they were in the spring – with all those guys injured and on the sideline, it'll be a really rough year for them. 
You know, the D, I was going to ask you about the offense first, but you brought up the defense. And they have some names. And you're right, there's not a lot of depth. But right. if you just look at the first team, there are guys that have performed. Leonard Williams, you know, obviously everybody's excited about Thibodeau. Uh, Jihad Ward's a veteran. Ojalari's not out there yet, but he's had his moments. And you also have a defensive coordinator in Wink Martindale with a track record. I mean, it, it, at least on paper, it seems like, and I don't know if you could say any part of this team is going to be a strength, but in comparison to other areas, it, it yeah. would seem like the defense would be further ahead. Yeah, I do think so. I mean, Aziz Ojolari is the one guy that, on the defense that's kind of sidelined right now, a little minor hamstring thing. But, yeah, you look at Ojolari and Thibodeau, you're like, okay, at least they have two serviceable pass rushers, right? And, and it, to be honest with you, it's been a while since you've been able to say that about the Giants. And then Leonard Williams, obviously, has proven to be a quality player in the NFL. So you're starting right there. Okay, if you can pressure the quarterback, that gives you a chance in the NFL, right? I mean, that is the number one thing you need to be successful as a defense in the NFL. And so they're finally headed in the right direction there. Like the, on the back end, yeah, are they thin? Do they have big question marks in the secondary? Absolutely. But you can hide those. Uh, you can hide those deficiencies if you have that pass rush. So I think they are. They they do have potential to be a quality defense now. How many pro bowlers do they have on that defense? I think Leonard Williams might be the only one off the top of my head that I'm thinking right now that has ever made a pro bowl, and I believe he made one. So, like, you need some guys to step it up and take their games to the next level in order for you to be a really good defense, right? In order to be a really good defense, let's say the Rams last year, right? They win the Super Bowl. I mean, they had guys like, uh, you know, Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey, and then they picked up Von Miller on the field, like, you know, that's what it takes to be a good defense. You need some high-end players. So it's like a big question of, okay, we're optimistic. Which of these guys – now, we're not expecting anyone to be Aaron Donald, obviously. But which of them could step up and be, you know, Pro Bowl, all-caliber type players? Because right now, to me, that's what they're lacking on, a, on that defensive side. There's a bunch of quality players and guys with potential – but they need some of those guys this year to take it to the next level. Yeah, that P word is key there because there is potential there, but you don't know how that's going to turn out. Jordan Renan covers the Giants for ESPN. Um, the, it seems like in our annual conversations, Jordan, you and me around this time every summer, I have to ask you the obligatory question about the Giants' latest attempt to remake the offensive line. Um, where, yeah. <laughs> where, where does that unit stand uh, in Daniel Jones' fourth season? You're not kidding. I mean, I always make this I quote-unquote joke, and it's not really a joke. A year 10 in the offensive line rebuild, right? Yep, yep. Like, I mean, that's legitimately where we're at. Uh, so, look, they have two guys <laughs> that they think should be legitimate bookend tackles. They invested a fourth overall pick on Andrew Thomas. He looks like he's heading in the right direction, right? Last year was a good year for him. Seventh over overall pick this year on Evan Neal. Like, if you're investing in those, like, that high of capital at those positions, you need those guys to be the real deal. And if they're the real deal and they have two bookend tackles and both of them, I mean, everything's trending in the right direction, uh, it gives you a chance. So I think finally we're at least reaching the point where the Giants are getting closer to uh, this year having a, qual a competent offensive line and potentially in the future – having a good offensive line. Now, the interior is still a work in progress. Mark Lewinsky, they signed this offseason. He's a, a proven starter in the NFL. Shane Lemieux, they're hoping, coming back from injury, 
can be something. And John Feliciano, a guy they signed from the Bills, they're hoping he can hold, you know, hold up at center. He's sort of like a one-year stopgap, at least for the time being. So, you know, get serviceable enough play in the interior this year, build around those two offensive tackles. Now, we haven't been in pads yet, Pat. So everything you hear about offensive line and really, you know, any defensive line and edge rushers, no, no. Not until they start putting on the pads. That's Monday. Do we really see what these guys are about? But, I mean, there's been pressure, a lot of pressure on Daniel Jones these last couple of days. You know, the, the offensive line still has work to be done for sure. Yeah, we've we seen without pads, as you said, uh, one of those battles this afternoon, the story at a Giants camp was this uh, heated altercation between Shane Lemieux uh, and Dexter Lawrence. I guess Lemieux threw Lawrence to the ground after a play was over. You, you, these are fairly commonplace. You're at training camp all the yeah. time. Do these ever turn into anything more than just a, a heated battle and then you move on? Yeah, I think it could become problematic if uh, it becomes personal between the, the individuals. I kind of remember once, uh, what was his name? Michael Westbrook, maybe, and like Stephen Davis. Didn't, didn't one of them like punch the other yes. guy like in the face? Yeah, it was over right? some. I that, do I have? Do I have the two guys right? You have Westbrook right. Um, they were on the wa- They were both on Washington. I, I I'll have to look up who the teammate was. But yeah, you're right. And I think that was over a personal issue. Yeah, exactly. So those kind of things, if it's personal, that can be problematic. But like Shane Lemieux just said he basically blacked out. That's like, this is the kind of thing you expect from Shane Lemieux. Like, that's the kind of player he was. Now, granted, you don't expect it to happen. It's kind of early. That, that's the head scratcher here. Usually at least it's a couple of days when pads come on. The pads haven't even been on yet. But when these kind of things happen, it's usually like the guy gets hit especially if it's an offensive lineman being being mad about something, and that's what happened. Lemieux definitely was not happy with something that happened to him, and he ran across you know, the field basically to take a shot at Dexter Lawrence, is if you get – either you hit him from behind or you get near his legs. Like, that's when guys get heated, right? Because then that's uh, putting their livelihood in uh, in jeopardy. So it's, it's, it's probably it was probably more of just like this one of the – just a – unfortunate situation where Shane Lemieux thought that you know, Dexter Lawrence went too low or hit him from behind or so- something of the sort like that and he just got upset and it's something you get over real quick because you realize in football things are happening so quickly and air guys are not really doing that kind of stuff on purpose so I wouldn't make too much about it. You were right it was Michael Westbrook and Stephen Davis on Washington uh, apparently uh Westbrook was being mocked or felt like he was being mocked by Davis. And then apparently Westbrook pounded on him for a few minutes on the ground. So <laughs> yeah, if I remember it, they didn't have their helmets on at the yes. time either. So he was like clocking him in the face. Yes. If I remember correctly. And TV cameras captured it all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you and know, then if a... you fight with the, if you fight with the, the helmet and, the, and you know, the pads on, those are phony fights. Right. Right. Those are stupid. You can break your hand. Someone in the face. Right. Exactly. You go and clocking the guy in the face when he doesn't have his helmet on. Now it's we're talking. This is now this is serious. All right, so we'll keep an eye on on the Lawrence Lemieux. See if anything else comes out. You're right. It is it is kind of early. It's not like it's been like a long slog of a training camp so far. So definitely, uh, you know, worth keeping an eye on. You know, you mentioned that the two rookie draft picks, um, Neil and Thibodeau. Thibodeau is a guy with the big personality, the big reputation coming in. Uh, what can you tell us from what you've observed so far? What can you tell us about Kayvon Thibodeau? It's kind of interesting. Like, you know, he's kind of, he's a rookie. He's just a rookie out there. You don't get the the feeling that he thinks he's too big for it. 
right? You know, and you heard a lot of things about him before the draft. Uh, but, you know, Evan Neal was talking today, and something he said kind of stood out to me, and he was like, you know, someone asked him about the, the back and forth between him and uh, Thibodeau, and he was saying, you know, Thibodeau's just out there working. He really hasn't been chirping much. And and even, like, you see his personality. He's a guy who's you, – you get the impression is kind of loud and boisterous. You know when he's in the room. He just has that big smile, big laugh. But, you know, he's he's been all business so far. And uh, I think if you're the Giants, that's kind of what you, you would have hoped, right? It's, he's still a rookie. He's coming in, and I don't care who you are in this league. Like, it's hard to be a rookie and be successful. Like, anyone who thinks he's going to come in and be like a 12-15 sack guy, I think that's probably unrealistic, right? How many guys come in and play at that level? Like, very, very few. And I'm, I'm even talking about guys drafted in the top five, top ten. So, like, if he has an eight-sack season, I think that would be a relative success for, you know, Kayvon Thibodeau, right? Just step in the right direction or you build on that. And, then you you know, you come in year two. I mean, go even, like, go look back and, like, Lawrence Taylor was obviously a freak and a different – a totally different beast, but like Michael Strahan, it took him several years. Like Justin Tuck, it took him several years. So the fact that Thibodeau's coming in and working and Evan Neal is that's just his personality, man. He's just and I talked to Mark Lewinsky, you know, the guard. Yeah. And I was like, what stands out about him? And he was like, he's just huge, man. Like he makes Mark Lewinsky, who's a big guy, who by the way, when I stand next to him, I'm you know, five eleven, two hundred pound kind of guy. Uh, he makes me feel like I'm super small. <laughs> and Evan Neal does that to him. That's how big Evan Neal is. Nah, he's a mountain of a man. Um, what, what's your take on the Kadarius Tony story from yesterday? You know, his his up and down rookie year, well chronicled. You know, the Giants fans who are the biggest optimists keep replaying that Dallas game and what he was able to do on the field before he got kicked out of that game that day. But you know, yesterday, uh, you know, Tony had, had put. Uh, produces hip-hop music during warm-ups. Brian Dable plays his song, and, and it meant something to Tony, and he spoke about it afterwards. Do you, do you think that's just, you know, a story that was filed during training camp when you guys have to file a million stories, or do you think it's a little more significant? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, let's see. What, it's always let's see what happens when things get tough. Same with the coaches, right? I mean, I'm at the point now where we keep, the, the Giants are changing coaches every two years now, right? That's that's the cycle we're in right now. Uh, everything is fine and rosy when you're undefeated. Let's see what happens when the you-know-what hits the fan, right? Uh, how do you handle it when there's a situation that's difficult, that guys are upset? Like, that that's when the real test comes in. Right now, everything's rosy and peachy, and in the, in the summer, everyone's in the best shape of their life, right? So I, I don't make too much of it now, uh, but – the Giants are in a wait-and-see mode with Kadarius Tony. I mean, I spoke to people in our organization about this for, like, the last couple months. It's like, we think he's a great player. Like, he has supreme talent. You know how talented it is. But let's see what he's got on the field. Let's see what he could produce. Let's see if he could stay on the field, right, because he didn't play much last year. Uh, let's see him work when he's not on the field. Uh, so, there's, like, yes, it's a positive sign for now. But this is, like... Pat, it's like when you're uh, you're making a long distance drive and you pass like checkpoint one, you know, <laughs> or maybe two. Like yeah. we're just at the beginning of the journey. There's so many more and bigger checkpoints. Like you're just cruising right now. Like there's bigger and more difficult obstacles that are going to come along the way. So let's see how 
let's see where they are when that happens. Jordan Renan, a couple more questions with him, ESPN's Giants reporter. Uh, haven't asked about Daniel Jones yet, other than is this the best offensive line that he's played behind? And, and like you said, it has potential to be that, which isn't saying a whole lot. But, you know, if the pieces stay in place around him, is he in position to be the Giants quarterback beyond this year? Yeah, I think it's a possibility. I know some people think because they didn't pick up the fifth-year option, it's like that speaks volumes. But to be honest with you, and I spoke to people in the organization about this, like what was the use for them to pick up the fifth-year option? Like they have the franchise tag there available. They can re-sign him if things go really well during the season. They can re-sign him during the season. So, like why rush to make that judgment? They have a new GM, a new coach, an evaluation period. Let's see him play in games and actually – perform at a really high level before we commit anything else to him, which to me makes total sense. So look, he's going to have to play at a really high level. Do would I, would I bet on him being back next year? I don't know. Probably not. Like if I had to put my life on it right now, but you know, there's so many possibilities of things that can happen during the season. And like you said, like, they do have a better offensive line. It's still not going to be great. Let's, you have to be realistic. You're coming from like, all right, let's say they had the 29th best offensive line. If they had like the 15th or 16th best offensive line, which is like right around like mid, you know, midway point in the NFL, I think Giants fans would be fairly happy about that, right, considering what they've watched the last 10 years from the offensive line. So if they can get to that point, that's a bonus. And I also thought about this. as It came to me the other day. If you think about it, Daniel Jones has never really played with a healthy Saquon Barkley. Like that year, that big year Saquon had, remember that was with Eli as the quarterback before they drafted Jones. So he really even hasn't had a full stretch with Saquon Barkley or a top or high-end running back to, to supplement him on top of the fact that his weapons have been injured. So they're crossing their fingers. They're hoping that they could keep these guys on the field. And this way you can get, a real evaluation of maybe what Daniel Jones can be with players around him and in this offense with this coaching staff. And if they really like what they see, then they'll end up bringing him back. If they don't, like, I think they need to be blown away with what they see. If they're not blown away, then they're in position to move on. Perfect position, right? That's what they did in Buffalo year two. They drafted Josh Allen. Daniel Jones is a free agent. Boom, boom, boom. Move on. Let me get you out of here on this. What is a reasonable expectation for Saquon this year? I expect him to be better. I mean, number one is he's he's in the second year off the ACL injury. I think that's a big difference. Rather than rehab like he did all last offseason, he actually got to train to play. There's a big difference. You always talk to players about it. There's a big difference when you can train your body to play rather than when you're just training to get back to be able to play. So I think that'll help him. So I think over a thousand yards rushing is a more. And so, by the way, it's 17 game season, so that's not anything special. But I think that's more than a fair uh, expectation for him. Of course, it always stems back to one thing, Pat. With him, he's got to stay healthy. Yeah. So you, you can't predict that. But uh, you know, last year kind of was a freaky injury. You know, he stepped on somebody's foot and hurt his ankle and bothered him for pretty much a while. And he was coming off point, his best game, too. He was playing well. Yeah, yeah, that that New Orleans game, by the yep. way, is the game that the Giants organization 
looks back on it, gives them hope that they can be competitive this year. That Daniel Jones in that game led him back late in the game in the fourth quarter. They went down the field. They scored in overtime. Saquon looked looked like himself. Big play in the pass game. Uh, walk off, you know, walk off touchdown. Like that's the game the Giants say, hey, if we're healthy, we can see a little bit more of that. That gives us some hope. But we can be competitive this year. But all those guys have to stay healthy. Remember, they were all on the field for that game. Galladay, Tony, Barkley, Daniel Jones. Can they stay on the field and be healthy all together? They need it in order to be competitive this year. Jordan, great stuff. Always enjoy chatting, and uh, we look forward to your coverage. Thanks a lot, man. You got it, Pat. Have a great show. You too. Thanks. Jordan Renan does a great job for years now covering the Giants for ESPN. Step away, react to what Jordan had to say, and update you on the Yankees as they uh, have added on to their lead in the Bronx. It's Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN New York. Nestor Cortez is through five. He's allowed two earned runs on five hits and five strikeouts. 90 pitches for Cortez so far, so he might have another inning left in his left arm. In the fourth inning, DJ LeMahieu, an RBI single. Andrew Benatendi, a sack fly against his former team as the Yankees have now extended to a four-run lead. Aaron Judge has a two-run home run, and LeMahieu has a solo shot, a leadoff home run. In the game this afternoon, Yankees are looking for their third straight win over the Royals after being swept in their two-game mini-series, Subway Series, at Citi Field earlier this week. You know, a couple of interesting points by Jordan. Um, the fact that Daniel Jones has never had the opportunity to play with a healthy Saquon Barkley. And I mentioned the point to him regarding Kadarius Tony, And Tony's only played one season. And the season was disappointing for a first-round draft pick at a skill premium position like that. But what you saw him do in that Dallas game in the middle of the season, and that's when the Giants looked like they had a chance to at least make something out of their season. And that all came to an end with Saquon Barkley stepping on someone's foot and spraining his ankle, missing the next month. And when he came back, he wasn't the same. The week before that New Orleans game, he catches, what, a 45-yard pass from Daniel Jones for a touchdown. And then he has the walk-off touchdown run in overtime as the Giants march down the field. Jordan's right. That is the game that the Giants point to about what the potential for this group can be. The Saints weren't a bad team last season. And the Giants had everyone available in that game. And that was it. That was the only time. And think about this. Barkley 2018 has one of the great rookie seasons anybody's ever had for a running back, a rookie running back. Then his second year, Giants have drafted Jones. He starts the year as the backup. Two disappointing losses to begin the season. And they make the move to go to Daniel Jones and put Eli Manning on the bench. Jones's first start is in Tampa Bay. He looked phenomenal. He had everybody's jaw dropping. The Giants win the game when Tampa Bay missed an easy kick at the end. But what else happened in that game? Saquon Barkley got hurt in that game and missed a month. Now, this was before the ACL, but he got hurt. He missed a month. So he basically missed, out of Daniel Jones's first five starts of his NFL career, he had Saquon for half a game. 
and then Barkley went away. And from that moment, that's when Saquon Barkley stopped being Saquon Barkley from 2018. He hasn't been that guy since, and he's not going to be that guy again. Now, the hope is that he can be a better version than he was last year and a better version than he was in 2019. That's the hope. Now, two years removed from his ACL injury. And it looked like he was on his way to doing that last year until he sprained his ankle in the Dallas game. But the other thing about that season that you've got to remember, and and, and this is why Jones and Barkley, through injury, have not been able to get on the same page. Saquon Barkley's best game that season... After he came back following the injury in the Tampa Bay game, his best game that season was when the Giants beat the Dolphins late in the year at MetLife Stadium. Who started at quarterback that game? Daniel Jones missed that game. Eli Manning started at quarterback. It was the final win of his career. It was his grand send-off. Saquon Barkley played probably his best game of the season coming back from the injury. And Daniel Jones was out that game and didn't get to experience that or benefit from that. The timing hasn't matched up yet for Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley. This is the Pat O'Keefe Show on 98.7 ESPN.